Welcome to another episode of the Prosper Podcast. Welcome, everyone. I couldn't be more excited about this episode. This is a very exciting episode for us. Like, when our guest, Greg Page, came into the studio to record, like, I had to, like, calm down a little bit. <laughs> just be like, mate, this is real. This is happening. Get in the zone. What is this guy doing in our office? I know. It was a weird feeling. Yeah. It was an absolute honor. Um, we've actually just gone and listened to some some original Wiggle songs. OG Wiggle songs. We just wanted to know whether they were as good as we remember. Yeah. And the verdict? Um, Some of them are good. Ah, I disagree with this guy. Don't listen to him. <laughs> Don't listen to him. I liked Big Red Car. Nah. I, I still liked it. I was like, you know what? That actually is... If I was a dad, I'd be happy for my kids to listen hey, to this. I- Way more over... You know, what did you say? Baby Shark. Ugh. Oh, yeah. We're talking about that. But I, I was enjoying every second. I didn't want it to stop. I didn't want to record this intro. I just want to keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Hot potato. Hey, slap. I mean, look, as an adult, it's not as good. But it's it's okay. as a kid, I loved I mean, I loved it. But you didn't stuff. you didn't grow up on it as much as I did, right? No, I was I was I was a bit older. So yeah. we had the like a first video, the big red car one, I think maybe was one of the first. We had that one. Had Wake Up Jeff. Mm. Had the Captain Feathersword and the Henry the Octopus and the... So if you're making your own version of the Wiggles and yep. you had to create some characters, what would they be? Like Henry mm. the Octopus, Dorothy the Dinosaur, like what would Glenn's contribution be to the Wiggle universe? Pete the Platypus. <laughs> That's yeah. very Aussie. It is. Uh, that would be something on the Holy Doolies, mate. <laughs> What's a Holy Dooley? You haven't heard of the Holy Doolies? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have, actually have not. Really? I had a guy that used to live next door to me called Phil Dooley. Yeah, and it, was a, it was like a competitor of the Wiggles. It was oh, the so LD version. <laughs> I know. I know. High five. Yeah, yeah. That's another one. Yeah. Uh, but the Hooli Dooleys. No, <laughs> the Hooli Dooleys. Okay. Well, but I like platypie. <laughs> Platypuses. <laughs> I think we should end that right there. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, this is an awesome interview. We talk with Greg Page. We talk about. Um, his collection, you'll yeah. find out a little bit more about that. Um, we talk about, you know, his career as the Yellow Wiggle um, and we talk about his sudden cardiac arrest. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a really powerful interview. Really excited to share it. Uh, let's get into it. Greg, Greg Page. Mate, thanks for coming in. Really Pleasure. appreciate it. Glad to be here. How are things doing? Going very well, thank you, yes. Enjoying life and uh, very grateful for life. Absolutely. Yeah, we all had a bit of a scare when we heard the news Yeah, it last was, year. Yeah, pretty shocking. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that is a life-changing moment. But I think any, any experience in life can be a life-changing moment mm. if you look at it in that way. Yeah. Right? Like <laughs> there's so many things that happen in life that can inspire us and can change our view on things. Mm. It just depends on our perspective, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll come to that. Yeah. What I actually want to start by asking you is, growing up, did you ever expect that you would end up being the fourth largest Elvis Presley memorabilia <laughs> collector in the world? No, because growing <laughs> up, I wasn't into Elvis at all. Oh, really? Yeah, no. It's something that happened later on in life. And in fact, it happened because um, Anthony Field, the Blue Wiggle, yep. he was a big Elvis fan. Okay. And he subjected us to lots of Elvis music in the car or in the van as we were touring around Australia with the Wiggles. Wow. And it was really when I heard the Elvis songs from the 1970s 
that I was gravitated towards his music. So I grew up, of course I knew, you know, every Saturday afternoon they'd play an Elvis movie on Channel 7 or whatever, but I was not interested because I had no idea who he was. But Anthony exposed me to his music and told me more about him and as I was listening to this music, I heard this voice, but I also heard the band behind Elvis. And when I'm talking about the songs, I'm talking about the stuff from the 70s the live recordings, not the studio stuff, right? Okay. So in the 70s, Elvis had this band called the TCB Band that backed him. And the TCB Band were made up of these hotshot musicians and they played for many people over the years, including Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, you know, you name it. These guys have played with them, Neil Diamond, John Denver. Anyway, so he had the TCB Band plus an orchestra, right? So Elvis would tour, not – tour with the orchestra he'd pick them up in every city that he played in but you combine elvis's powerful voice with the power and energy of the tcb band playing with elvis Mm. and an orchestra and you have this cacophony of sound and energy it could go from tenderness and and light to powerful and heavy and almost not not dark but i mean if you watch the aloha from hawaii concert in 1973 you'll get a sample of what i'm talking about right you've got this powerful energy on stage and it just really connected with me so it was at that point that I was open to knowing more about Elvis and when we went to Memphis on tour with the Wiggles we had a day off and Anthony said right we're going down to Graceland we're all it was a day off and I was just like oh I don't want to go yeah but that that visit to Graceland just opened my eyes to what what Elvis was off stage and that he's a human, right? Like mm. everybody, you know, like I was. You know, yes, I was Greg Wiggle on stage, but I was a person. I had a life. I had interests. I had problems. I had all of this stuff going on in my life. And when I went through Graceland, I could see that Elvis had, you know, from the outside looking in, looked like he had everything. Mm. He had money. He had women. He had fame. He had a voice. He had good looks. He, but he didn't have what he strived most for, I think, and that was happiness. Mm. He was happy on stage. He could perform. He got that buzz. As soon as he stepped off stage, he was back to being Elvis, the regular guy. Mm. And that's the dilemma, right? We all kind of have that in some way in our lives. We have this persona or this person that we show to the world because we're comfortable. We, we want people to believe that we are confident in who we are. We want people to believe that we are not struggling, that we're coping. Mm. And we show that. Then we retreat sometimes and it's like, man, I'm not that person. I'm partly that person, but there's a lot of me that I'm not showing the world. And I think that Elvis had a lot of that unhappiness going on. Yep. And talking to people that knew him, I, you know, I'm not just basing this on what I saw at Graceland, but it was seeing that human side of Elvis that really opened my mind to wanting to know more and delve more into his journey because in some ways I felt like my journey was paralleling. It was like I've got this immense you know looking from the outside in you think that the yellow wiggle might have it all he's on stage enjoying himself entertaining kids successful blah 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 but in my personal life i was struggling i wasn't having mm. that kind of success that was being emulated in my business career yeah i was going to ask you that so you related to elvis in in, in many ways it, yeah in a lot of ways i guess and um it was that visit to graceland that made me want to know more and as I knew as I found out more 
I found that you could actually own things that Elvis had owned in his yeah. life, which blew my mind. It was like, what? You can buy Elvis's boots on eBay? Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I purchased a few things. And as I was collecting more and more, I thought, you know what? I think this story is so important to share with people. Apart from the fact that, you know, Elvis is a megastar and people just love that, there's a story that I found out at Graceland that a lot of people in Australia probably might not get to go to Memphis and have that no. experience that I had. So if by collecting these things I can display them somewhere and give people a chance to get up close and personal with Elvis's clothing, his cars, whatever it might be, but also share with people a bit more about the deeper side of mm. Elvis, that, that's really why I started collecting. What's the weirdest thing you own of Elvis's? Well, that's a very good question. I've owned some weird things. <laughs> um, look, to be honest, the weirdest thing that I've, owned that really kind of I felt uneasy about was the tag from the pyjama pants that he was wearing when he passed. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's something that I didn't actually set out to purchase. I made a purchase from somebody and they added that into the purchase, you know, that I, I made. And on one hand I was like, wow, this is really – I was going to say cool. I, I don't mean cool as in, wow, isn't this amazing? It was – I mean, that is something that Elvis was wearing at the time he passed away. And it, it was, it kind of blew my mind. You know mm, what I mean? It's, it's a little bit morbid almost. Yeah, a little bit morbid. And so I actually gave that back to the folks at Graceland. I said, look, if this is legitimate, and I asked them, I said, look, here's the story of this tag. This is what it looks like. Do you think it's a real thing? And they said, yeah, it's probably the real thing. So I sent it back to them. I said, look, it doesn't belong in collectors' hands. This belongs back in your archives. Mm. And I've done that with a few things over the years that I've had, um, things that I think are just too personal that shouldn't mm. be in collectors' hands. You know, it's a fascinating story, the way that a lot of Elvis's possessions got into collectors' hands, right? Okay. So on the day that Elvis passed, a lot of the people that were living with Elvis – friends and family they realized that their they call it the gravy train you know that's a colloquial term but mm. they, they realized that their easy ride their livelihood was over yeah you know there, there was no elvis anymore to provide for them so what are we going to do so they took things from graceland and even on that day i've heard people were down at the gates of graceland selling things to fans to make money mm. some people held on to things for years and as time went on, those items appreciated in value. And there's so many things out there. Because Elvis was very he, – he wasn't thrifty with his money. He was, he was very frivolous with okay, it. He bought yep. a lot of things in his life and he bought things very generously for other people as well. But he would buy you know, heaps of clothes. Like if he liked a jacket, mm. he'd buy five of them. Oh, really? Yeah, either the same or different colours or whatever. And then he, he'd just go through wardrobe like it was going out of fashion. Mm. Every time he got something new, he'd have to clear out his old wardrobe. So he would go through it and he'd give it to people that were there at Graceland with him, so staff or friends. He'd say, look, this, this would look good on you. Why don't you take this? And they'd take it you know, and they'd keep it and whatever. Yeah. So all these things that are connected to Elvis came about in a variety of ways mm. and, and things that were kind of personal, family things, things that if I guess being in the public eye myself – if things of mine like that got out there, I would not be comfortable with somebody yeah. having them. So I, I would give them back to Graceland and just, you know, that's where they belong. Yeah. 
Oh, that's awesome. Is there much of a community of Elvis collectors? Like, are you connected with a bunch of collectors? Yeah, look, to be honest, I'm kind of out of that side of things now. I'm not really in that space. I yep. still have my museum at Parks where yep. they have the Elvis Festival every year. So if people want to, they can go and visit the King's Castle in Parks and see a bit of what – what it's like to get up close and personal with the king um but yeah look there is a there is a community of collectors uh and it's a it's like a lot of things you know there are people that are very diligent in what they do and there are people that are not so diligent so some of the some of the items can be a bit dubious sometimes as to whether they're authentic or not Mm. and that's a whole there's probably experts that can verify things yeah in some ways and you know it's funny sometimes I, i remember i bought something off ebay and you know in the time of my collecting, I realised eBay wasn't the best place to be buying this, this stuff. You know, it wasn't the highest <laughs> yeah. quality of assurance. Uh, but I did buy something off eBay in the early days that I believed was legitimate. And I thought, yeah, this yeah, it, was a, it was actually Elvis and Priscilla's applications for their marriage certificates. Wow. So it was two sheets of paper that they'd filled in um, the day of their wedding in Las Vegas. And I held on to it for years looking at it and it, it just looked authentic. And the story that was told on eBay when I purchased it sounded right. You know, I thought, okay, well, that sounds legitimate. So I purchased it. I think it was about 150 US bucks or something like that, maybe 300 US dollars. It's pretty cheap. It was cheap. I thought, I thought, if this is legitimate, then that's a great buy. Over the years, though, I became more aware that there were some really good forges of Elvis's handwriting out there. And I Mm. saw some really good examples of forgery. It made me question these ones, right? So I sold them to somebody believing that they weren't real. So I oh, no. <laughs> I, either sold, I don't like where this yeah, is going. <laughs> so I, I sold them for either less than I paid or what I paid for them. Yep. And, you know, I, I'm always upfront with people. I say, look, here's the story of, of where I got it from, what I was told. I don't ever vouch for something's authenticity because if I didn't get it from Elvis, I can't say <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. his, right? Yep. So I just am upfront. So somebody purchased it. They went and got the handwriting authenticated by somebody and, yeah, it was authentic oh, no. and, yeah. <laughs> but that's what I love about it too. It's because, you know, there there is kind of like the nuggets of gold in the haystack. So you, you ferret through all the hay trying to work out what's good mm. and what's not. And sometimes something that looks not good turns out to be like the biggest chunk of gold ever. Yeah. And then other times, you know, somebody comes in selling something with all the hype around it and blah, 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 blah. And then you find out, oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) That's not what it was sold as, you know. So it's got its highs and its lows. And I guess that's one reason why, amongst other things, I'm not really in that space anymore. Yeah, sure. So what was life like growing up for you? Life was great. It was, I would say... You know, reflecting on my childhood, I had a very happy childhood. Um, I grew up in Northmead, not far from where we are right now. Uh, I've always been in the sort of hills, Western Sydney kind of area. Love it out this way, I guess, because I grew up there and I've recognised it as a great place to raise family. Um, But for me, growing up, I had one sister. She's uh, two years older than me and we had our fights just like siblings do, but we spent a lot of time together and we shared some great memories of childhood. So... Yeah, growing up was good. Um, I think as I look back on childhood, I would say that probably from a young age I viewed life as being full of opportunity. Mm. Um, So I'm kind of blessed in that way that I've not not viewed life as being limited. Mm. Yeah, like an abundance mindset, like I can can go after things. Yeah, like it's there for the taking. If you want to go for it, you go for it. And that's kind of what led me on a path to living – a dream 
yeah. of being an entertainer. So from a young age, I can remember wanting to perform and entertain. And I guess by the time I got to a, being a teenager, I was more aware that maybe that dream's not going to happen. You know, it doesn't happen for everybody. Mm. So perhaps I'd better have a backup plan. And my parents were very much of that view that, you know, not everybody's going to make it as an entertainer, son. You better make sure you've got a backup <laughs> yeah, plan. We can't support you forever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, you yeah. know, what are you going to do? How are you going to support yourself? So, yeah, I went down the path of exploring um, other alternatives whilst I was still pursuing music. But I think for me my way of living my dream then turned to being a roadie, you know, working as – With the cockroaches. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. So I was a big fan of the cockroaches – so in 1987, I think it was 1987, the Cockroaches had a big hit, um, number one hit right around Australia, a song called She's the One. Yep. And I was 15 at the time and my sister had been a fan of the Cockroaches before that and she used to listen to them in the car on her Sony Walkman back in the day, <laughs> cassette tapes. And yep. I'd go, what are you listening to? And she'd say, oh, it's the cockroaches. I'd go, what, the cockroaches? What kind of name is that? <laughs> you know? And I was dead against the cockroaches. Yep. And then a series of things happened that led me to, like with Elvis, being a bit more open to things. And as I found out more about the cockroaches, I thought, wow, they're cool. They've got this great energy and vibe about their music. And kind of ironically and important to my story in some ways, my first live experience of the cockroaches was an under-18 concert at Castle Hill RSL. Oh, wow. Yeah, in 19 – I think it was 1988. Might have been 88. I can't remember. Anyway, then, you know, because I was fascinated by them, I, I was a fan, right? So I'd bought their album. I knew they were doing another show at Castle Hill RSL, but it was an over-18 show. I couldn't get into that one. But I went and waited outside the venue to get the guys to sign my LP. One wow. Night, again, at Castle Hill RSL. And met the guys. They signed the things. And subsequent to that – I then decided that I wanted to be a roadie, wanted to work in the music industry. If I'm not going to make it on stage, I'm going to make it behind the scenes. So for my high school work experience, I decided to do sound engineering. I did a week in a recording studio in the city and then I did a week with the cockroaches. Wow. Yeah. And how did you – I just rang up their management. I said, hey, I want to do work experience as a roadie and I guess they thought, hey, free labour, <laughs> why not? <laughs> And so they did. They let me go and do it. It was only two shows that week, though. They only yeah. had two gigs. Um, one was Parramatta Leagues Club and the other was, I think the other was an under-18s gig at Hurstville Entertainment okay. Centre from memory. So I did that. I met a couple of the guys on the crew and they said, look, anytime you want to come and help out, you're more than welcome. So what did I do? <laughs> I went and helped out. You know, any chance I could, I'd jump on the train and the bus and go to where they were playing turn up at two in the afternoon, unload the truck with the guys, set everything up. And as time went on, I formed a stronger relationship with the guys who were the stage crew for the, mm. the band rather than the sound engineer. And for me, that was that was cool. I was setting up drum kits. I was setting up guitars, tuning them, stringing them, doing all that kind of stuff. And it meant that I was closer to the band. And I, I loved that. Yeah. I wanted to be on stage, right? So being the stage crew was much better for me. So – when I was leaving high school, I think I'd just finished my HSC and I got a call from the cockroaches management saying, you know what, our stage manager's leaving at the end of the year. How would you feel about coming on a stage manager? And I was 17. I wasn't even 18 at this Amazing. point in time. And I re remember saying to my folks, I've just been offered a gig 
working as a stage manager for the cockroaches. I couldn't believe it. it was yeah, and you had phenomenal. no background as in like you didn't study. No, no, the, you probably don't need to. I, I had on-the-job experience, yeah. which was fantastic. So that mentality of seeing an opportunity, yeah. taking it and growing with it, you know, like it's huge gaining the information was really powerful. And I'd built up over that period of time of going and doing that work experience with the guys, I'd built up a relationship with Anthony who had said to me, look, you can't be a roadie forever, right? So what are you going to do? And I knew that music could play a part in education and teaching because when I was growing up in school, we had teachers bring their guitars in, they'd sing songs and we had a great time in class. And I thought, well, if I can use my music in that way, then that's fine, I'll I'll be a teacher. Anthony said, well, don't be a primary school teacher or high school teacher, be an early childhood teacher. So I was like, okay, well, what does that mean even? I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> he said like preschool, you know, not, yeah. not primary school because primary school is all stencils and getting things right and making sure that you're not wrong, whereas early childhood is all about just expressing yourself. Mm. So music and creativity was the very much stuff. high on the agenda. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I thought, okay, well, that sounds great. And Anthony said, by the way, the course that I'm studying, there's 300 girls and five guys enrolled. So <laughs> why don't you come and check it out? So I thought, okay, I'll go and check that out. The true reason the Wiggles was formed. <laughs> kind of, kind of, yeah. No, no. But yep. um, that, that was really a turning point in yeah, my life. And it, and it only happened because I followed that other part of my dream. Again, goes back to believing that things, there's no limits, right? Mm. The limits are self-imposed. If there's something you want to do, you can go after it. It might not always work out the way you think it will, but it certainly can propel you on a path that allows you to explore further opportunities. I love that mindset. I've got a very similar mindset. You know, I haven't reached the success that you've reached, but I'm always trying things and creating things. And it's amazing how rare that mindset is. Yeah, that's very true. And it's interesting that you say you haven't reached the success that I have. You probably have because success is how happy you are inside, Mm. right? As I said, with Elvis, look at the success he had. But he also had unhappiness. Mm. So success shouldn't be measured by our perceptions of, you know, commercial success or, yeah, or status. Hitting goals. Yeah, well, goals are okay, I guess, you know, because as long as your main goal is happiness, mm. everything else comes secondary, right? Because when you've, when you've got happiness, you've got everything. You've got, you've got the ability to look at life in a way that allows you to succeed even if you fail, Mm. right? Because we often look at failure as a measure of our inability to achieve success. Failure is actually just an event. It's just something that happens. It's an opportunity to learn as well. It's an opportunity to learn, but it's also an opportunity to just say, okay, well, that didn't work. Where do I go to now? Mm. Not, well, that didn't work. I should never try that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'll go get a nine to five. Yeah, gosh, (laughs) imagine. So I, I just believe that life, Life is there for the taking. Mm. You know, it's, life is fragile. Uh, I'm not going to deny that. I think everybody knows that. We, we have experiences in life that beat us down and we have experiences in life where we experience immense grief, mm. immense trauma. But ultimately life is a matter of perspective and how we look at it and what we choose to do with that view. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm just pondering it now. I'm pondering <laughs> life. You thought about a career in uh, being a motivator, motivational speaker, because I reckon you'd be good at it. <laughs> well, no, I sometimes, I, I, look, I, 
I haven't because <laughs> I haven't perfected life. That's the yeah. thing, right? And I don't feel like I'm qualified to talk about this stuff. But mm. if we're going to chat about it, I'm happy to chat. But I yeah. don't want to stand yeah. up on stage and lecture <laughs> people and say, you know, hey, but yeah, I'll leave it to Anthony Robbins and those <laughs> yeah, more qualified yeah, yeah. people. <laughs> so when Anthony comes to you and says, I want to start a children's entertainment band, what was going through your mind? Uh, Were you excited? Or? Yeah, of course I was excited. He um, he, he called me on the phone and I was at home living with my parents still in Northmead and um, yeah, he said, look, Greg, you know, I think um, I've been listening to a lot of early childhood music and I think we can do it better. Yeah. <laughs> he was <laughs> right. Well, maybe. Uh, he might not have used those words. but he I'm gave- biased. I grew up on the Wiggles. Well, that that's, shows how young you are <laughs> and how old I am. But he he kind of put it to me in a way that said, you know, he's been watching Play School, listening to their albums, been listening to all these other early childhood artists. And with what we'd been learning at university and what he knew about live performance, and this is where that whole thing with the cockroaches, the energy at their show and the vibe, it was all about audience interaction. Their show was about the audience and making sure that they left happy. It wasn't Mm. about showing what great musicians they were because I don't believe that those guys thought they were great musicians. They were great entertainers and that's what matters, right? You want to go to a a show and just relax and enjoy and come away with a positive feeling. Mm. And I think that Anthony took that mentality and brought it to what we created with the Wiggles. And I think that me having experienced that as an audience member with the Cockroaches – made me realise that that's what the Wiggles needs to be. It's about the kids. It's not about us. Mm. It's about the kids having an amazing time and getting that energy vibrating between the stage and the audience in such a way that it just kind of builds to this crescendo. And used to feel that on stage with the Wiggles. We'd walk out on stage and there was this energy. There was this, um, I don't know, just this, I guess it came from the respect that we had for the audience because we weren't, we weren't there to take advantage of them. We were there to give them something. We wanted mm. to give them a great time and and give them entertainment that was educational and clean and family friendly. And that's what it was about. And that's that's why you know people will say, oh, you know, you guys set out to create this great empire. It was like, no, we didn't set out to do anything other than write good songs for kids. But because we came from a place of pure intention, I think that's why we were able to achieve what we did because we never sat down and said right here's the business plan we're going to do this then we're going to do that then we're going to do this and we're going to conquer the world no yeah it didn't happen that way well you focused almost on the i mean this is business terms but you focus on the customer you just said hey we're just going to yeah. create something that they will love and connect with that's right and you're right that's business terms but we never thought like that yeah i, I guess maybe after a while we realized that that's what we were doing but mm. we never sort of said well we've got to be customer oriented here and we, we, did, we were not business people. We had didn't know the vernacular or we didn't know how to put things in those terms. We did it organically. And because we were teachers, we knew what it t- took to educate children in a classroom. We knew the strategies to use to engage them. Mm. We knew the kinds of things that they could understand and the way that we had to frame things for them to be able to comprehend and delve deeper into what we were doing and, and really engage with it. And you were young. You were 19 when you started yep. with the Wiggles, right? So did yeah. you finish the, the course? I finished uni, yes. Yep. I passed, thank goodness, <laughs> uh, even though I wasn't there much in second and third year. But, um, yeah, I passed. But by that stage, because the Wiggles did start when I was in second year, um, so by the time I finished uni, it was kind of like, well, 
we'd gone from doing shows at shopping centres, birthday parties, those kind of smaller gigs in preschools and what have you. We were now doing shows at community centres and town halls and doing 500 people a show. Wow. Maybe. So was it a rapid growth? Like overnight? Well, no, not overnight, no, it wasn't. It was over a couple of years. And yep. I remember we did a show over at the, you know, the San at um, Warunga there, the sanitarium, the yep. hospital. They used to have a community centre there and this uh, play group or whatever booked the Wiggles to play there. And in those days, you could book the Wiggles for 500 bucks. We'd come and do a show. So they booked us for 500 bucks. Cheap as chips. Sold 500 <laughs> tickets at you know, $5 a ticket or whatever yep. and paid us the 500 bucks and kept $2,000 for themselves. And that's when we realised, hey, we've got some pulling power here. We're mm. actually able to sell tickets. Look at what they've done. So well done to them. But unfortunately, it meant that from that point on, <laughs> nobody could book the Wiggles for 500 bucks anymore yeah. because we knew what we could achieve. And so I guess, yes, the business side of it then became apparent to us that if we're going to be doing this, we can actually do this full time. If we can do that kind of thing every day, and we were at that point in time, we were getting gigs just about three times a week. So if we could do that and they were selling shows out and they had to put a second show on or whatever, we thought, okay, this is growing if we can grow this, there might be something in this full-time. So Murray and um, Anthony gave up their full-time teaching job. I had a scholarship um, with the education department. I was supposed to go straight from third-year university into teaching for the Department of Education, but uh, I didn't, so I had to pay back a whole chunk of money to the Department of Education because I wasn't taking up their job. Um, and we just went on the road full-time, and it was incredible. So it kind of just grew from there. When was peak for you? Like when was the most exciting where you just enjoyed it absolute most? Was it early days or was it? Oh, look, it's hard because enjoyed it for different reasons mm. at different times. So, yeah, certainly in the early days, traveling around Australia, it was just the four of us. Might have had one or two crew members, but it was the four of us in a van listening to Elvis and <laughs> traveling around, <laughs> yep. around Australia. And we had great times because we were mates, you know. Mm. we it, it wasn't We weren't thrown together to create this group and it wasn't like, none of us didn't like each other. There was never any of that. Sure, we had our arguments at times, but at the end of the day, we were mates. And that's – so to be on the road with your mates doing what you love with people that you love, it was just an absolute blessing. So those days were incredible. Then, of course, when we started to break into the US, that just blew my mind because mm. we had no idea. We had no intention. We had no – I don't know. I guess from an early stage, we didn't really see – the potential of what could happen with the wiggles so it kind of just step by step you know grew bigger and bigger to go to the u.s and when you've got people like robert de niro jerry seinfeld so mick, you met these people yeah mick, wow. mick fleetwood and john fogarty from credence clearwater yeah so they're uh, bringing their kids to shows and wanting to meet you yeah, and stuff that's right wow yeah it was really mind-blowing because you've got john fogarty coming up and saying Hey man, I, I really love that song, The Monkey Dance. It's like, <laughs> you're kidding me? What about Bad Moon Rising, Proud Mary, uh, mm. Down on the Corner? All of those great Credence songs that he's been a part of. And here's John Fogarty saying, I love The Monkey Dance. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing was, um, Josh, my brother, who's over yeah. there, and my sister, we went to uh, the first reunion show, I think. Oh, it, um, where was it? Over at Pitwater RSL, I think, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Anyway, um, everyone's over 18. Mm hmm. But it was amazing how much everyone was getting into it. Yeah. There's this huge line to get in. It was kind of a bizarre scene because it's not often you see children's entertainers and alcohol. No. You know, in the same room. <laughs> quite, quite unique, isn't it? But yeah. I think that I, for me, those reunion gigs, we haven't done many of them. But 
that's the thing I love about them. I love the fact that adults can connect with their childhood. Yeah. Because childhood is so influential on who we are. And I certainly hope that the Wiggles have been a very positive influence on Absolutely. most people that have engaged with the Wiggles. And those kind of childhood connections that we have as adults obviously shape who we are, but they can shape who we can be as well. So mm. to connect an adult with that innocent, young, carefree, um, creative child again, hopefully will empower them as an adult to embrace that outlook on life and that freedom, that um, that childhood energy, I guess, is the thing. And, you know, whether it's fueled by alcohol or not is another matter. <laughs> but I, I, I still think it's such a, an amazing thing because the Wiggles, 30 years this year, right? Wow. 30 years they've been going. And Anthony's still there traipsing around the world doing what he loves to do. He loves it, doesn't he? He does. And, <laughs> you know, to to his credit, the Wiggles have survived 30 years because of him. Mm. You know, he's there every day doing what he loves to do and, you know, it's not a, a secret. He's got his own battles with his own demons that he's been battling for, for many years. And going back to when we started out, we didn't know. We weren't aware of what he was going through. And, you know, those tensions between us at that time stemmed from our um, unawareness. <laughs> I don't know what the other word would be. From, from us being unaware of exactly what he was dealing well, what with. What were the demons? Because I don't think I'm aware of... Well, look, he suffers depression and, yep. you know, without going into the detail of what they are, but yep. for anybody who suffers depression, I think they would know that the demons can be very different. Yeah. And the triggers can be very different as well. And so I don't pretend to be an expert on his situation because, you know, it's something that's personal to him, but I know that he's come out saying that he's you know suffers from depression and I know a, quite a bit more about it now and how bad it is for him, but it's something that I haven't sat down and said, "Hey mate, what's the problem? You know, what's what's causing all of this?" because that's something he's been working through for a long long time mm. and it's it's not my place. If he wants to open up about things, he, he's more than welcome to. Yeah. But it's really just that thing of saying, "Mate, how are you feeling today?" Yeah. You know, how are you feeling? Not what's the cause of all this because <laughs> man, you know, quite often nobody can fix the cause. The it cause can be a chemical the, imbalance. It can be something yeah. like that. That's right. So but when it relates to some trauma or an yeah, event, sure. That's already happened. That's in the past. It's then up to the individual to deal with it in some way. But the people around them can support them and just encourage them. And, mm. you know, it's it's not easy. It's not easy when you've got those deep, dark holes that you keep falling into. It's hard to claw your way back out and find 100%. the light and stay in it. Yeah, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I went through a couple-year battle with depression. And mm-hmm. actually on the on the cover art of the, the podcast, it's a, a – illustration of me taking my mask off and being like you know what i'm just going to be real good to myself and that's you know so what? Cool. it's it's so important to actually talk about this stuff because yeah, so many is. men struggle yeah they feel like they need to fix it themselves and sometimes you can't and i think as a man we kind of have this feeling that we're obligated to be tough to be strong to yeah. be to be a man right mm-hmm. and i know there's so much going on in the world now around breaking down stereotypes which is great um but I still think society has a long way to go in terms of accepting people just as they are, mm. right? Without, without people feeling they need to impress, meet expectations, do the right thing, I think there's a lot of those societal pressures that people feel in various ways, you know, 
whether it's yeah, just a, a comment or whether it's rules and regulations. And I'm not saying that we have to get rid of rules and regulations. We need mm. them, right? But how do you fit in when you don't feel you fit in? That's that's the thing. How do you fit into a place, a family even, right? I mean, if we break it down, you hear the expression, oh, he's the black sheep of the family. Yeah. Right? <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Why, why are we calling him the black sheep? He's the one that doesn't fit in. He's the odd one. He's the crazy one. He's the one that does things different. So those kinds of comments or things are not helpful. And as I keep saying, if it comes back to childhood, in those first seven years of growing up, you are a sponge. You're soaking up everything that goes on around you. Mm. Facial expressions of people, approval, disapproval, comments that are made, things you hear, things you see, things you do, the way you react. All those things become who you are and they form your habits, your mm. habits of your emotional reactions, how you react emotionally to things. And as humans, we don't get that guidebook at the age of one to say, right, welcome to life. Here's what you need to do as a child to grow up to be perfect when you're an adult. Mm. Or even for parents, you know, it's like parents well, don't have a guidebook either. Even if they did, they're already tainted. Yeah. Right. By yeah, all the stuff that's right. happened to them and all the baggage that they haven't dealt with appropriately. Mm. And their perspective of the guidebook is going to be tainted by what they experienced growing up anyway. So mm. that guidebook, you can probably just chuck it out the window, <laughs> I reckon. Yep. It's a great ideal and I would, and I think there are definitely books and things. There's plenty of them out there. But it depends on who's receiving the information as to how it's going to be received, right? Mm. So there's going to be people that listen to this now and some of what I'm talking about, people are going to go, what a load of rubbish. What on earth would that guy know? Mm. Because their experience has been different to mine. And experience plays such a big part in the way that we approach life. If your experience in life is to always be downtrodden, to always find it hard, to always be the one who comes last, or, that's your experience. That becomes who you are. Mm. You, you will find it very hard to break out of that unless you start believing that you are not that. Yeah. Right? So self-belief. What we believe about life becomes who we are. So your perception is your reality yeah i mean mm. do, do you know a guy called dr joe dispenza i don't oh my goodness please can you look him up yes. joe dispenza now he's a um, psychologist i guess but um he kind of he kind of almost branches off into spirituality okay, and cool. energy and almost quantum physics oh and, wow and i kind of like that you know, because <laughs> yeah. it really does connect who we are with energy mm. and our childhood yeah, and well. all those things I've just spoken about, how who we are as adults is really shaped by our childhood and in particular those first seven years. But every experience that we have since then, but based on that, that sponge that has soaked up all those experiences. And he, he says that your personal reality becomes your personality. Oh, wow. And your personality equally becomes your personal reality. Yeah, wow. So if you have that personality of being the, the victim, the downtrodden, the one that never succeeds, that will become your personal reality. Mm. It will become self, um, well, self-fulfilling self prophecy, prophecies, yeah. yeah, those kinds of things. Wow. Yeah. That sounds unreal. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. So did you ever have to put on a mask you know, as the yellow wiggle? And, yeah. and how was that? Like, Well, it was hard. And... You know, I, I went through a marriage breakdown in the time that I was in the Wiggles. Um, so 2004, I separated from my first wife. And, of course, I didn't want people to know. I was very protective of that. Um, being the yellow wiggle, you know, entertaining children, um, 
you don't want to be known as the guy who, you know, failed in a marriage and now has left his kids and, you know, mm. I was already leaving them every time I went on tour. You know, what kind of father is that? That's not a good example, right? So there was all that stuff that I was dealing with. But again, I was projecting others' perceptions or what I perceived other people might think of me onto my own situation. And that mm. was not helpful. It was not healthy. So it was a very hard time. But I probably made it harder than it needed to be. Um, so, Why is that? Well, because I was thinking, oh, you know, what if the media find out? Oh, what are yeah. they going to say? What if, you know? So it was very much having to try and keep it close to my chest. Mm. Yeah. So, yes, definitely. So more than most, I imagine, you'd have to put on a, a big mask. Like, because you're well, smiling and again, being. Or, or could you just sort of compartmentalise it and just go, oh, I'm just in oh, the to, to an extent. To an extent. But no, I again... I let my thoughts get the better of me. Mm. I, I let my thoughts take over my beliefs and thought becomes belief, belief becomes action. Mm. The more energy you give to a thought, the more it becomes a belief. The more energy you give that belief, the more you act mm. on that belief. It's almost like CBT, what you're describing there, cognitive behavioural therapy. Quite possibly. I don't yeah. know enough about that. Yeah. It's just uh, like a counselling technique right. where you focus on your thoughts to change your behaviours, which will mm -hmm. change your feelings and you can sort right. of... Yep. interject it sounds similar yeah 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 so it's this is more an energetic thing so yeah okay. a bit more of a spiritual thing perhaps yep. and so like you know basically everything in the universe has energy whatever you give energy to is what you're going to get mm. because the more energy you give a thought if it's a negative thought the more you're going to be focused on that the more that thought in a negative form becomes a belief and you only tend to act on your beliefs in life because if you don't really believe something, you won't tend to act in that way mm. unless you're being false. Right? But out of habit then, you fall back onto your beliefs. So if you believe something to be true and it's something that's built on some negative thing because you've built it up in time with lots of energy being focused on that, you're going to be acting in a way that's not helpful. Mm. So I guess to your question, I didn't compartmentalise enough all those negative thoughts I was having. I was giving them energy. I was worried. I was mm. feeling fear. And fear is such a negative thing. And I was feeding that fear. And it was really not helpful to me. Mm. It's not helpful to anybody. What, what am I talking about? Fear is not a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, there are times when we need to be fearful, but there are times we create fear that we don't need to create. Mm. And I think because of our survival instincts, our brains gravitate towards fear. So we need to be very make a conscious effort to go, you know what, I'm going to focus we're, on we're the, programmed. the positive. We're programmed to do that and yeah. we have to break that programming because of our, you know, back to our caveman days, you know, what's around the corner? Is there a tiger, a lion, whatever it might be that's going to eat us? So mm. let's be aware. Let's be constantly vigilant about mm. our environment so we can protect ourselves. When, you know, uh, of course there are dangers in the world. I don't want to pretend that I'm not a realist because I, I am very much a realist, but I know that, the more you focus on things that can go wrong, the more that they will go wrong mm. because that's what you're focusing on. Confirmation bias tells us that what we look for, we find. Confirmation bias tells us we have, nar we have narrow tunnel vision because we are looking for the thing that we are worried about or the thing that we are looking for. So if we're looking for things to go wrong, we find all the things that go wrong. Mm. We don't focus on the things that have gone right and that's what we need to do. We need to broaden our vision and look at, everything in our life not just focus on the one or two things that confirm our beliefs that's powerful hopefully <laughs> <laughs> so during this time 
you know, you had the marriage breakdown, but only a couple of years after that, that's mm-hmm. when you were diagnosed, right? Yeah. So how did you get through that period? And when there was doctors saying you got seven years left to live, I mean, what was going through your head? Yeah, so 06, by, by the time the end of 06 came around, I'd had two hernia operations. I'd had double hernia repair that I needed done and I was not feeling real well. I was run down and what have you. I think there was a combination of things going on. There was some physical things. There were some emotional things. Yeah. And that all compounded at that time. And the universe will speak to us in various ways. And sometimes it will just knock you over and you need to listen. Mm. And I think that's what was happening then. It was like, you know, get yourself sorted out emotionally and physically and then you'll be fine. And I did that to a certain extent. I took that opportunity. I retired from the Wiggles because I had this condition called orthostatic intolerance. But in the process of trying to work out that I had that, doctors were confused. They were like, oh, man, what's going on with this guy, you know? One doctor said, he didn't say, you might have only seven years to live. He said, oh, look, we're just going to investigate orthostatic intolerance or some other more sinister thing. I thought, more sinister? I thought, what on earth is he talking about? So I went and researched some things and I found out what he was talking about. The test that they were doing was to rule out, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the thing that Johnny Cash ended up having uh, muscular no, not muscular dystrophy oh gosh i can't remember yeah it was something anyway um so dealing with that only lasted for a few days because they then came back and okay. said you know so that wasn't so bad but i remember one night just lying in bed and thinking oh gosh you know this this could be it i might have mm. seven years and at the age of 34 i was like i'm not ready for that yet you yeah. know i've got a lot of living to do and so that was quite confronting and it's always a stressful, you know, um, when something's happening in your body, you don't know what it is. You know what yeah. I mean? Where it's like, it could be anything. And if you Google... It's oh, Dr. Google's our <laughs> yeah, worst enemy. Terrible. Yeah, that's right. So don't feed the energy into Dr. Google. <laughs> you know, it can be very destructive. So how did you get through that period? Was it just once you got the, the right diagnosis? You're yeah, like, right, so I'm, it was a, a number of things. The right diagnosis helped because I was on medication then. And yep. definitely leaving the wiggles helped because doing shows constantly i was losing so much fluid i don't drink a lot of water um but of course with the wiggles we would sweat so much i have to drink a lot of water to to maintain hydration but part of the issue that caused the orthostatic intolerance was the fact that my body doesn't retain salt you need salt to retain fluid Mm. so without enough salt you don't retain enough fluid so even that's though why I was, you're getting dizzy I was getting yeah majorly fainting. dehydrated yep, yeah wow that's right so leaving the wiggles meant that I wasn't losing so much sweat and that really helped me to build up those hydration stores again mm. and just you know, rebuild my health was that difficult to decide oh yeah it was it was a terribly difficult time for a number of reasons you know I was still going through the marriage breakdown process you know trying to sort things out there things hadn't been really resolved in terms of how we were going to move forward mm. um then leaving the wiggles and then facing a new future, new reality. What was because that going to look like? Did you expect to do that for much longer? Oh, yeah. At yeah. that point in time, I was, that, that was my life. I was really happy doing that. So you almost had to mourn, you know, yeah. the, the loss of being a part of the wiggles. Yeah, but I wasn't um, sort of woke enough to realise that that's what it was. Mm. So what do you think it was? Just like a... Well, I don't know. It's just a, a life change. I didn't yeah. realise there was a grieving and a mourning that mm. had to go on. It was just like, okay, well, I'll try and do something else now. And, you know, it, it's hard when you take... When, when you can't do what you've done and been successful at, and that was a measure of my success at that point in time because mm. that was the only thing I had to measure, success, 
it wasn't until after that I realised that, hey, no, maybe that's not the best way to measure success because those kinds of measures are not permanent. But I am. Mm. I'm permanent. I need to be a good person. I need to be happy. I need to make sure that I'm okay. And that's why I keep saying that happiness is the greatest success because everything else is transitory. So was your identity sort of mixed up in being yep. Greg the Yellow yep. Wiggle? It was who's Greg? <laughs> who's Greg? Is it yeah. Greg Wiggle or Greg Page? No, I sometimes accidentally call you Greg Wiggle. That's like <laughs> I wrote a note today. Don't call him Greg Wiggle. <laughs> oh, no, no, Mate, there's worse things I could be called. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, that's really interesting. Um, and how long did it take you to sort of realize that that wasn't your identity? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I, I don't know that there ever was a time that I kind of went, ah, oh, bang, you know, I – I'm sorted out. You know what I mean? It just kind mm. of happened. But I'm never going to not be Greg Wiggle. Yeah. Right? Because Greg Wiggle was me. It was just maybe an exaggerated version of me or mm. just – and I'm so known for that. So I'm never going to be able to say, oh, no, that's not me because it kind of is. And when I mm. look back, I'm incredibly proud of being Greg Wiggle. So I'm never going to sort of rule that out of being a part of who I am it's just now not the biggest part of who I am. Mm. Just on a lighter topic. Yeah. Did you ever get any weird requests from parents or mums? Like, did you ever have to sign a potato or something? <laughs> um, like, did they ever hit you up and ask for something? Not God? me personally, no. No. <laughs> okay. No, no look, funny stories? Oh, plenty of funny stories. Probably ones I can't share though. That's the only oh. thing. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, look... The, the thing is we had um, – the Wiggles had this incredible power to connect with people mm. for a number of reasons. And I think the whole thing we're talking about right now is what it comes back to. Parents would come to the Wiggles shows without their kids sometimes. Wow. Particularly in the US, we'd get a lot of that. And I suspect a lot of that was because at a Wiggles show, you can be carefree. You don't have mm. to worry about your mortgage, your – partner, problems with your neighbours, whatever. You can just come to a Wiggles show and disconnect from the world and be caught up in this beautiful world of innocence and fun and that energy again going back to the cockroaches, right, mm. that energy that's there. And I think that's what it was for a lot of people. And so, yeah, mums, we had mums in America that would travel basically on tour following us around and – yeah. It so was, their kids had grown up and they just kept coming or something? No, or? they'd sometimes leave them at home with the husbands, <laughs> yeah, and just travel around following the Wiggles. And they had a great time, you know. It, I don't find that weird. Do you know what I mean? I mm. think that was their way of just enjoying. Disconnecting. Yeah, mm. yeah, disconnecting with the world and connecting with other people, finding that sort of support unit, I guess, which mm. is important in life, right? Absolutely. And let's face it, there's worse things people could be doing than going to the wiggle show right? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true <laughs> yep absolutely so if we could provide that means for support for them then that's so I don't know, powerful mm. it's such a privilege we've been so privileged to be a part of people's lives in a positive way yeah well they were almost just doing their over 18s event before you guys started doing it you know, yeah they were the innovators that, that's right yeah <laughs> well maybe that's why we thought it, it could work yeah you know, that we, we know people and they're all the sellout wiggles. shows right the over-18s ones? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They sold out like in seconds, <laughs> literally. Yeah. So speaking of that, in January yeah. 2020, um, at one of those shows, you suffered a cardiac arrest, yeah. um, sudden cardiac arrest. Yep. And uh, I saw the footage. So it's, it's towards the end of the show. Mm -hmm. You go to get a glass of water and you collapse. Mm -hmm. yep. What was that experience like? 
Um, deadly. <laughs> yeah, one in yeah. ten survival rate. Yeah, bro. one in ten survive, and it's something I don't remember a lot about. Mm. And because it is, because it was a sudden cardiac arrest, I had no warning that it mm. was happening. So it's important people understand there's a difference between a heart attack and a sudden cardiac arrest. Okay. So I had a heart attack, but the heart attack I had was so massive that it sent my heart straight into cardiac arrest. So one of my arteries blocked off. A heart attack is a plumbing problem, so it's the arteries. Cardiac arrest is an electrical problem. So when my artery blocked off, my heart became deprived of blood, which meant that it couldn't function properly. That dysfunction stopped the sinus node in the heart that sends all the electrical impulses out and tells the heart what to do, stopped mm. the sinus node from working properly. So it was just sending out all these random electrical impulses. So my heart was actually just fibrillating. It was shaking. It wasn't pumping. That's a cardiac arrest. So when, when you have a cardiac arrest, you're not breathing, you're not responding because your brain's not getting blood, it's not being perfused, and your lungs aren't being perfused either. So you stop breathing. So that's why I say it, it was deadly. Mm. But, but I wasn't aware of what was going on. I'd, I'd just done a one-hour, 20-minute show and, you know, that would normally leave me out of breath. That would leave me huffing and puffing. And mm. I do remember lying on the floor when I collapsed and I remember looking up at the ceiling and thinking, God, I'm out of breath. I'm really exhausted. And I kind of then remember maybe rolling over onto my side and that's all I can remember. And I think Did you that, almost like die temporarily. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's when somebody's in cardiac arrest, if you don't intervene, if, if bystanders don't get involved and do something, that person will die. Wow. There's no, there's no other alternative in cardiac arrest. It's death or life. And if, mm. if that person's left unattended, death is the only option. So when somebody's not breathing and not responding, Doing something is better than nothing mm. because doing something gives that person a chance of survival. Doing nothing ensures they won't. So somebody came and gave you CPR while somebody else went and got the AED device, um, right? There were a few people involved and um, so a, a doctor who was in the audience, she was there with her daughters at the, on the night. She jumped up because her daughter said, Mum, you better go and sort Greg out. He's just collapsed. So she came up. Then one of the Wiggles staff came over. She was called over the radio to come and help. So they started CPR while the guys are out on stage doing the encore. They're doing hot potato. <laughs> they kept singing. Yeah, they did. <laughs> and um, I, I think they weren't sure what, what was going on. Yeah, I, I, they're probably in shock, and not sure what to do. I, so they just as I, as I look back at the footage, I see the looks on their faces, and knowing what happened, I just think. What on earth were they thinking? I, ha I haven't really spoken to them about that. I mean, we've spoken many times since then, but we haven't. I haven't sort of said what on earth was going through your <laughs> your minds because I because I know that Anthony freaked out. He was kind yeah. of really, really um, hit hard by it. I think I read that he had a panic attack. He did, yeah. And I remember him coming to the hospital the next day. He was a big mess then as well. He came to see me, and he was he was very distressed. He had another mm. panic attack in the hospital when mm. he was talking to me. So, you know, the guys are out there doing hot potato. There's CPR going on backstage. They finish the song and the drummer gets up and comes over and helps with the CPR. Then at some stage, somebody from the club was um, asked to go and get the AED. They, they went and got the defibrillator and brought it to the stage. 
by that point, Grace from the audience, a nurse, she jumped up as well and she used the AED to shock my heart and that's what brought me back to life. Thank God. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. And, you know, not a day goes by I don't think about it and mm. I'm not, you know, I'm so grateful to those four people in particular. But there are other people on the periphery of everything that happened that, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. And mm. with only 10% of people surviving, we know that there's a lot of people in, in the wrong place at the, at the time and we need to make more right places at the right time for more people. Mm. So how's your perspective changed since that near-death experience? Um, I don't know if it's changed. It's probably just been enhanced, I yep. think. Because like I said earlier, I've always had this kind of outlook on life that looks at opportunity. And I think now I see the opportunity to use my profile, my image, my um, public persona to really promote awareness of this issue that's killing so many people every year in mm. Australia. So if I can use that for good, then that's what I want to do. So it's just same outlook on life but different different path. Mm. Yeah. This is a new mission. New mission, yeah. So Heart of the Nation is your the charity or yep. is it a charity or foundation? Well, Heart of the Nation is an initiative because the yep. charity is actually called something else but the, the name isn't as good because Heart of the Nation – for a company wasn't available. So Heart of the Nation is the name of the initiative and yep. it it's really about just promoting the chain of survival. So making sure that people know when to call triple zero, how to start CPR and to use an AED to save a life. It's really those three main links that we require everyday people to be responsible for when somebody's in cardiac arrest because ambulance response times can be eight to 12 minutes. It was 12 minutes for me, you know, we're here in Castle Hill. There's an ambulance station just over there, not far from where we are. Castle Hill RSL Club's not far from there. Mm. But the ambulance took 12 minutes because there wasn't one at Castle Hill that night. It had to come from Blacktown, right? So these – Even 12 minutes is pretty quick. It's quick, I yeah. I imagine well, sometimes it would be even longer. It, it can be and that's the frightening thing. So mm. we need more people in the community to know how to do CPR and we need more AEDs in the community for those people to grab and use – to save a life because as good as our ambulance services are, they just don't get there in time sometimes. Mm. So how can people go about learning how to do that? How can I go about learning? learning? Yeah, that? well, there's many great training organisations who will teach CPR and how to use an AED. Um, Surf Life Saving New South Wales, the Red Cross, St John Ambulance. There's private organisations as well. Um, but sign up to one of those courses. But it's important for people to know you don't need to be trained to save a life. You've just got to give it a go because, as I said, any attempt at resuscitation is better than none. Yep. And anything you do, when somebody's not breathing and not responding, you can't make them any worse. You, you can't kill yep. them more That's than true. they're going to die, right? <laughs> yep. Dead is dead. Yep. So pushing on their ribs, you might break some ribs, but that's the worst that's going to happen. Mm. Right? If they survive, they're going to survive with broken ribs. And if you start CPR sooner rather than later – they're going to survive with their cognitive functions more intact because you're pumping blood around the body, yeah, getting cool. blood to the brain. And that's, for me, one of the biggest, my wife always says, miracles. My wife's mm. a cardiac nurse, by the way. Wow. And she knows a lot about the heart and stents and you know, heart attacks. And she always said to me, I just don't want you to have a heart attack at the age of 53. Well, I lived up to that, didn't I? <laughs> I had it at the age of 48 instead. So, yep. you know, I joke about it, but I can joke because I survived. Yeah. Right? But not everybody does. 
And I've got to use my story now to educate people and make them aware of what an issue this is because I tell you what, governments aren't doing anything. Mm. Governments are not stepping in at the pointy end and saying, right, we need to fix this. We need campaigns about CPR and AEDs. We have campaigns about road safety. We have campaigns about a whole range of issues, but not this one. And Mm. this issue is killing just as many, if not more people. Well, certainly it's killing more people than road fatalities. There's 1,200 deaths on the roads across Australia every year, as opposed to 20,000 deaths from cardiac arrest, out of hospital sudden cardiac arrest. And to me, that's just not good enough. That's one reason why we still have such a high rate of death from cardiac arrest, because government is not spending enough on education and providing the tools for people to use when they need to. Mm. So what's next for you? Is this your focus now? Yeah, it is. It is my focus for now. What's next after this, I don't know, but I've got a lot of change to try and affect in this space. So I'll be working hard for some time to come, I think. Well, if there's anything we can do, you know, I've got a website agency, so if you need website help or anything like that. Indeed, we do. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I think what you're doing is so important. So please keep up what you're doing because, you know, when people have the right tools to deal with life, And there's no one thing that's going to give somebody the power because everybody's life is different. So providing as many perspectives on life and how to deal with it as possible, something's going to resonate with Mm. somebody out there. And if we can change that for one person, what an amazing thing, right? Absolutely. To change one person's life and help them through something like what a lot of people are going through. If we can pull one person out of that hole, then that's just so incredible. So well done to you. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that a lot. All right, talk soon. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to keep up to date. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at the Prosper Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.